We now have our first speaker of the conference, and it's my great pleasure to introduce Brian Lander, who is currently the Deputy Director of the World Food Programme, the office in Geneva. And before that, he worked at World Food Programme headquarters in Rome, focusing on external relations. And before joining the World Food Programme, he was with the UNHCR for 20 years, working in the executive office at its headquarters in Geneva, as well as in a number of field offices. So Brian's going to speak about um, the changes in humanitarian work over the decades from his own experience. So Brian, thank you very much for being with us, and we look forward to your presentation. Pleased to be here. It's great to have this uh, experience and exposure to, to you. Often we're not speaking to the academic world as much as we probably should or or need to. So it's a great uh, it's a great opportunity to also hear your views on some things that I I will say or raise. Um, as as was mentioned, I'm, I'm Brian and I work for the World Food Program. It's a UN organization based in Rome. But it's a, it's a large organization. I'll get into a bit of the details on, on what WFP is all about in a minute. Um, just briefly in my background, uh, I joined the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Hong Kong a long time ago. I don't know if I want to tell you how long ago, but it was still one of the colonies of this country at the time. Uh, so I was young and uh, working with Vietnamese that were, were both people who were arriving in Hong Kong at the time and living in detention centers. It was quite a, a difficult situation, but great exposure for me to sort of the world of humanitarian work and, and what the UN was about. I moved around quite a bit with UNHCR then. I was in Indonesia for a long time, with, uh, again with Vietnamese and Cambodians, uh, and then all over the place, uh, Afghanistan, the Congo, uh, Pakistan, as, as uh, someone at my table was you know, talking about, uh, Syria and other places. So it's it's a great organization, UNHCR, and it exposes you to a lot of the, the terrible situations in the world, but also a lot of hope. So it's, it was a great experience for me. And then in 2009, I moved to the World Food Program, and I, I went from UNHCR headquarters in Geneva to, to Rome to work there and, and work on external relations. So the World Food Program is a whole different ballgame, in fact. Uh, it's, it's a very hands-on, can-do, delivery, at all costs type of organization, and very exciting to be part of it. I'm not saying UNHCR is not, but it's quite a different dynamic. So uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what the World Food Program is doing, but also then also a little bit about refugee flows and, and, and some of the trends that are happening today. Um, so feel free to jump in if I say something that you want to question or have questions on. I think at the very end of it, we will have a bit of a Q&A opportunity. So hold, hold on to your questions as well towards the end. So maybe I'll just describe the current state of play in the world on, on hunger and food insecurity, just to sort of set the stage. And then following that, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about some of the trends that we're seeing as a humanitarian organization and how as a UN humanitarian organization is trying to adjust the way that we respond uh, and adapt to these current uh, trends in the environment in the world. 
So can anyone tell me how many hungry people there are in the world? And that table can't be. <laughs> Two billion. <laughs> Not quite. 800 million. Very good. 821 million. Yes, very good. You've obviously been doing your reading. Um, so that number is big already, but it's gone up. That's the number today, but five years ago it was about 500, or sorry, 780 million. So we're seeing a slow growth, despite in the 90s and early 2000s we saw a decrease in the number of people hungry around the world. Why? We'll get into that a bit. Um, now, what is hunger? What is, what is famine? Uh, the, the words hunger, starvation, famine, they've all become relatively synonymous. Um, there's not a huge difference in what people imagine these things to be. It's a common human experience to be hungry. And it doesn't take long to get into a starvation type situation. We all know that. And this is against a reality that in the world today, there's absolutely zero reason for people to go hungry. We have production levels of I think the estimates are up to enough food in the world for 12 billion people. And we're, we're, near, we're nowhere near that many people in the world today. And on top of that, you have distribution networks that are fully capable of delivering food practically anywhere in the world. So you have this reality of hunger, and you have this other reality of capacity. And so those two uh, are where we, WFP, comes in to try to bridge some of those challenges. So, in the most extreme form of hunger, we talk about starvation. And starvation is, is the result of, of a long period of famine. We hadn't had famine in the world uh, in, in the modern age very, very often. The last time was in Somalia in 2008, 2009, I believe it was, where you did have a, a moment, uh, a, a very terrible moment of, of famine. But then in 2017, suddenly, you had four situations, uh, northern Nigeria, South Sudan, Somalia, and Yemen, where you had famine declared. And we're very, as a, as a, as a food organization, as a UN organization, along with our, our sister agency, the, the Food and Agriculture Organization, we're very reluctant to use the F word, as it were, the, the famine word. Because that, that implies complete failure by someone. We can take the blame ourselves as well, because as a humanitarian organization, we should have seen that. We should have set in place the, the, the means to respond to it. But the fact of the matter, in 2017, you had four famines, 20 million people affected. And so suddenly, this, this reality of famine came back onto the agenda of the world. And that's something that we, we need to then come to grips with, well, how are we going to avoid that in the future? So if you look at terms of levels of hunger, the methodology we use is called the Integrated Phase Classification, the IPC. This is considered the gold standard in terms of food analysis in the world right now. For me, it's, it's, I can tell you some of the challenges around it, but it is the way that we're able to tell what communities are facing. And you have five levels. You have a minimum level where people essentially are able to meet their needs. You have a stressed level where you start to see people selling some of their assets or, or struggling. You have a crisis level, IPC3, and then emergency level, and then and, uh, famine. Now moving from the crisis level to the famine level doesn't take much. It's, it's, it's a couple of weeks without uh, access to the village, uh, the burning of the grain storage, 
and next thing you know, you're in a famine situation. So there is a, a very delicate balance between those different levels. And this is something that we're constantly watching around the world. So looking at the big numbers, 821 million, as I said, the biggest driver of hunger within that population is conflict, by far. Uh, at the moment, we, we just recently had a, a global report on, on food crisis issued. Uh, the number was 113 million people that were in a crisis food security situation in a conflict. That number went down slightly since 2017. In 2017, it was 124 million. Uh, the reason for that drop can be attributed perhaps to fewer climate events in 2018 that were affecting countries that were in conflict, so you did see some gains, but still it's 113 million people. It's, it's a huge population of people. So the biggest, the biggest crises, and I can rank them from, they, they rank the, the top eight. Yemen is, uh, is, is number one right now, uh, with about half the population uh, in a crisis stage, about 15.9 million people. Before the war, Yemen was completely dependent on external assistance or external imports, and so you can imagine what's happened after the war. Number two is the Congo, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, for a variety of not only internal conflict, but then we've also seen the, the rise of the Ebola crisis, which is also impacting Afghanistan. And Afghanistan seems strange because you do have somewhat of a more or a less conflict situation. You do see some elements of peace coming up, but they had a huge uh, famine recently, or a huge um, drought recently that led to uh, some real terrible situations. Ethiopia, I'll go through them quickly now. Syria, Sudan, South Sudan, and Nigeria. So those are our big crises right now. Those are about 90% of the, of the 113 million that, that we're dealing with. Um, then if you also look at the, I'll give you lots of statistics. Sorry about that, but statistics often tell the story. Uh, linked to that are people that are being forced from their homes and, and moving internally or as refugees. That number is at an all-time high as well, 68.5 million. Uh, that number went over the past five years from about 60 million to this number of 68.5 million. I guess you could attribute a lot of that to Syria. Syria alone, I think, is 6.5 million people that have left the country. Uh, but also we're seeing conflicts uh, continuing in South Sudan, uh, Yemen, and elsewhere. So when people go on the move, they're much, much more vulnerable both to hunger, but also disease. And living in refugee camps or living in temporary housing often exacerbates then the, uh, their hunger situation. So you've got these multiple causes of, of hunger. Uh, and the solutions to that are, are response and, and providing for them. But what we're seeing now more and more is that you're having crises that are protracted, that are, are lasting not just a couple of years, but the average length of a, of a humanitarian crisis today is nine years. We've seen other conflicts that have lasted longer than that, of course, but you're looking at an average across most conflicts today being unresolved for at least nine years. The World Bank did a recent study where they found that 40% of countries that came out of conflict fell back into conflict within two or three years. So you've got those dynamics happening as well, which are 
fundamental to those numbers I, I was talking about on, on, uh, on hunger. So out of that 68.5 million, 40 million are, are internally displaced, and they don't have the same protections as, as refugees do. 25.4 and and million are refugees, and most are from just three countries, Afghanistan, South Sudan, and Syria. So we're seeing a concentration of multiple factors resulting from the conflict and the unresolved conflict. So that, that's a, a real challenge. Uh, the other relationship to that movement is we do see an impact of food insecurity or, or communities that are perhaps struggling because of conflict or other things and not getting enough food and them moving. There's been some analysis, and we need to do more analysis of this, analysis of this. but there is a link between people not having enough food and the fact that they then pick up and move. And I think there's interesting connections you can make with um, international migration and some of the challenges we've seen of, of migrants coming into Europe and elsewhere and food and, and the availability of that in, in communities. There's also some research, and again, it's not... I'd say convincing at this stage, but there are links between food insecurity as a cause of conflict. We often see the, the reverse. Conflict causes people to be hungry or to, to need food. But when you do have rises in prices, for instance, very quickly, we saw that in the Arab Spring, for instance, in a number of countries. Uh, there was a very distinct example in the violence in Kenya after the elections in 2000. 2009, linked to food. So you saw these rises, people didn't have enough food, they often turned to conflict then to try to, to uh, ensure that they had enough. So there, is, there are connections there, it's, it's multifaceted of course, but food is a big, is a, is a big driver of that. Um, as I mentioned, uh, conflicts uh, and crises are are becoming more and more protracted. And, I, and the other trend that we're seeing is that there is less of a capacity to negotiate uh, set resolution. Uh, there's, less, there's seemingly less incentive for armed actors today, whether it's because there's a multiplicity of actors and differing intentions and drivers for the conflict or I'm not sure, but we're seeing that these protracted conflicts, or, or even the ongoing conflict, there's less incentive for people to stop fighting than there has been in the past. It's, it's less straightforward. We haven't seen many peace agreements hold, period. Uh, we do have local agreements where we can get access to communities on and off. We see that link to food security. For instance, in South Sudan, when we had the analysis, this, this IPC, as I mentioned, analysis of a, of a particular community was going into a famine level, we would see the government allowing access because they, there was a stigma attached to declaring famine. It's, it's, a, it's a condemnation in a way of, of government policy. So you had that link between the two. And so you had these, <coughs> these moments where you had negotiating positions because of the food security of the community. But they're not tenable, they're not, they're, they don't last. And, and that's one of the big challenges we see today is that you're just not finding that, that longer term resolution. So maybe I can shift a little bit now to what WFP does. Um, so the World Food Program came out of the Food and Agricultural Organization of the UN, FAO. 
Uh, FAO was established uh, several years prior, uh, and then WFP became essentially the way to channel surplus grain in the US through the United Nations to humanitarian uh, causes. This was in 1963. That's when WFP became a, a UN entity. Uh, at the beginning, it was largely that channeling of surplus food, and it was largely around development type projects. So school feeding was a big focus. Um, ensuring that there was a uh, grain reserve in countries that were at risk of famine. These types of operations. That lasted until about the mid-1990s, uh, and you had Bosnia, and you had other crises around the world where WFP then really shifted, and I'd say probably mainly because of donor push. Uh, WFP is 100% voluntarily funded, so we're very much listening to what the donors are saying. Not, not, we, don't, we are operating humanitarian principles, but the donors do have a lot of influence on what we do. So in the mid-1990s, we shifted much more to humanitarian. So before then, we were about 80% development, 20% humanitarian. And then in the post, well, Bosnia, post-Bosnia, that period, we became about 90% humanitarian work and 10% development. And so we've really shifted our capacity into this, this immediate response capacity. And that's really what WFP is known for. Um, we've, we've got, on average, about 5,000 trucks on the road every day, about 20 ships at sea, and about 90 planes in the air every day moving food around. Uh, it's a big, big logistical operation. And that's where that surplus grain sort of helped WFP grow that capacity. Uh, to put it very bluntly, in one of the big criticisms of WFP, uh, even up until recently, we were known as the Chuck and Truck, Truck and Chuck Agency. So you just moved the food out, pushed it out the door, and away you went. We, were, we became very well known for the airdrops in South Sudan during the Sudan Civil War. Uh, more recently, we've become fairly well known for the high altitude drops over Syria for communities that were under siege. So there's this huge logistical capacity that WFP puts out uh, to, to the, uh, the humanitarian community. We distribute about 15 billion rations every year. Uh, they're about 31 cents, US, US cents, uh, a ration. Um, and we distribute about 18.3 million school meals to children. School Meals is really sort of a development side of the organization, but it's really the one that we try to build resilience and bring in the girls and the kids and make sure that we're addressing more root causes in communities. So School Meals is a big, a big part of what we do. Um, we purchase about 3 million metric tons of food a year, but that's changing, and I'll get to that. Uh, We've been known as, as a commodity, an in-kind, as we call it, a food agency. The big shift now is cash. You know, delivering either vouchers to use in shops or actual cash. But I'll, I'll talk about that more in a bit. Uh, I mentioned that we're voluntarily funded. Uh, we raised about $6.4 billion last year for operations last year. We're estimating about $7.1 billion for our operations this year. Um, that's against an overall humanitarian appeal from the UN of 24 billion. 
but we're about a third of, of the UN's humanitarian appeal. So big capacity, big operations, uh, 15,000 staff around the world, most of them in the field, um, and very present on the ground. But things are changing. You've got these conflicts going on, and of course that's a big part of what we do. But within the UN system, there's a recognition of, of larger trends, and I'll touch on that a little bit now. Uh, there's a, you've probably heard about UN reform, although that probably makes you roll your eyes. Um, but under this Secretary General, there is a big drive to change the balance of what the UN is responsible for. And he's really shifting things towards ensuring that the development work that's delivered by the UN is really linked to any of the humanitarian efforts that we're doing uh, preceding that. And it's, for lack of a better word, it's terminology, but they refer to this as the nexus, humanitarian development and peace nexus, in fact. So I'm looking at peace as well. So in line with that, we are looking at um, how WFP can, can shift its work to ensure that we're doing that as well. And I guess it's linked to these bigger trends that we're seeing, as I mentioned. You know, conflict is more protracted, but we're also seeing more internal conflict. Um, and that's perhaps one of the reasons there is more of a, a reluctance to find resolution, because you don't have the same international instruments to apply as you would in an international conflict. These, these civil wars and interstate wars are often very protected by the interests, not only of the state, but the, the, the states that support that state uh, for a variety of reasons. So that, that causes us to have to respond in different ways. We see a distinct disregard for the principles of humanity or the respect for the international community that we have in the past. Uh, we had, for instance, uh, last year there were 158 major incidents of violence against humanitarian workers. We had um, uh, 139 uh, staff were killed from the UN last year. Uh, you had 388 attacks against health, pers health personnel and facilities on the ground. You've seen that in Yemen and elsewhere. So you're seeing this distinct, I'd say purposeful, disregard for principles that I think were held fairly sacred up until a decade ago even. The respect for organizations like the ICRC or, or Medicine Sans Frontieres, you're not seeing that same level. And, and it's almost a purposeful disregard, as I, as I said. There's a, there's a reason to disrupt that and to create new dynamics. Uh, and that, that creates a big challenge for us. The number of armed actors is also growing. Um, I, there was a study that in the 50s, uh, in an armed conflict, a civil war, you had an average of about five armed actors. The figure jumped to about 14 in 2010 or so. In Syria in 2011, we had over 1,000. So you've got these constant dynamics that you're, you're dealing with. And, and for WFP, it's, it's the nature of the beast in a way, because we're on the road, we're trying to deliver food, and we're negotiating access. We're trying to, as they call it, deconflict our access to communities. But when you've got that many people you're dealing with, it's impossible. And, and things go wrong at some stage. So that's a multiplier that we're seeing across all, all types of conflict. Uh, and that's certainly undermining what we're doing. 
I'll talk a little bit then, moving away from conflict perhaps, because I know that a few people wanted me to talk also about climate change. So climate change is, a, is the second big driver of hunger in the world. Conflict is the big, big one, I would say. But uh, within, within that, climate change is another factor that is driving, driving hunger. Uh, in the first instance, we're seeing it in extreme events, either droughts, or the hurricanes and typhoons that you've seen. We, we had the cyclone hit Mozambique just recently. Two cyclones hit Mozambique just recently. Haiti, and even earthquakes and things. So you have these big events that are, 2017 there are fewer, but we, there's a trend for them to increase. And so we are having to look at how to respond immediately to those types of events. But then you have these creeping uh, trends, desertification, uh, lack of water, uh, heat stress uh, that kills off crops and kills off uh, live, uh, uh, livestock, um, pests and disease. So those, those sort of longer term trends are harder to spot and they erode people's livelihoods, they erode their capacity to cope. And that's something that's filtering into our consciousness in terms of how we respond. And we're trying to put in place programs which are much more adapted to preventing that, or at least uh, preventing the same level of shock in the community, and, and preventing that moment when somebody has to sell off all their assets and work in the street. So it's a multiplier for a lot of different things, but we are trying to put in place uh, responses. So for, one, for instance, one type of response is to use our food capacity to encourage communities to build uh, communal works uh, that uh, put in place, uh, you know, uh, dams for water uh, accumulation, to combat erosion by planting trees and other things. So directing our food assistance towards more specific uh, outcomes that are helping communities be resilient, rather than just simply giving communities the food or the assistance, actually framing that around a project that allows that community to then cope better. Um, another area that we've been looking at is, is climate risk insurance. So you're looking at where do we see some of these climate changes or, or, or trends in the climate and putting on the ground weather stations, for instance, to monitor when do we see less rain, when do we see more rain. And then allowing farmers access to insurance to address that when, they, when the event happens and so that they're not then having to sell their assets. The big thing is get people to hold on to your assets. If you can weather that sort of period, hold on to your cattle, hold on to your cow, or to your goats or whatever, you're going to just be that much better off at the end of it. And so what we've got to put in place are these systems, whether it's insurance or, or other means to allow them to do that. We're also doing for, forecast-based financing. So we're, do, we're looking at risk analysis. Uh, early warning and emergency preparedness then. So you're, again, sort of preloading a particular area or region for a crisis that we know will happen and getting donors to back us on that. So if we know that there's an area that's, there's a dry corridor, for instance, in Central America, we know that that's going to be a problem year after year. And so we are putting in place enough food or enough assets on the ground so that we can help support the government in, in responding to that more regularly. And our, our, our perspective on this isn't to simply address the 
communities are most impacted. What we're looking at is we're trying to say, okay, as a government, you have a social protection system in place, or if you don't, we need to develop that. You have a social registry. You've got uh, capacity to, to draw on when things go bad. We want to make sure that those communities that we're addressing as most vulnerable, often ones that are then excluded by the government in these systems, for instance, let's say a refugee population that happens to be in a border area. We want to target our assistance so they're being brought under that broader umbrella. And that's, that's the bigger perspective. It's not so much that we're supporting the government and its policies, we're just simply trying to influence the government so that those policies are more inclusive of these communities. And so through the climate change type responses and building either risk, capacity and analysis and informing uh, governments and how they respond, or through direct uh, application, we're trying to bring that bigger scope of, uh, of assistance to those communities. We also do a lot on climate information services. So just simply putting at the, uh, uh, for the governments, the, the information they, they need to actually predict what's going to happen. Uh, there's a lot of weather services out there that are quite good and capable. We have arrangements with satellite uh, companies to be doing a lot of imaging, a lot of analysis of before and after. Uh, we also use more and more drones in these type of uh, capacities to go out and do remote monitoring in areas that we normally can't get into. Uh, we do a lot of uh, feedback and collecting information through mobile phones. So we'll, we'll distribute mobile phones to communities that we know are vulnerable. We'll have a hotline or a, or a regular call with them once a month to say, how's it going, what's happening, and be able to adjust our programs uh, depending on what they're seeing and what's on the ground, irrespective of whether we have access to those communities. So with technology, you're starting to see this capacity now to get more information and be able to be a little more smart about how you're doing things. So in, in those environments, those are, those are the types of activities. We're, we're not a big player in climate change. I'd say we're growing. Uh, there's a lot of interest in what WFP can do in climate change, but it remains a very small part of our program. It's, it's, in L, it's, it's part of a broader direction, as I mentioned before, in this, this nexus shift between humanitarian development, but I'd say even more broadly towards engendering resilience of communities. Uh, a lot of what you hear in terms of the rhetoric coming out is how do we make sure that these communities are resilient to, to weather uh, situations that we've seen in the past they haven't been able to and what does it take? Now I mentioned uh, cash as a big change for us. Cash as a form of assistance really started to gather momentum about five years ago. Uh, you start to see now the systems being put in place with the, with the, with the expansion of mobile, mobile phone networks for communities in very remote areas to have access to those types of capacity. So we're trying to, to capitalize on that. So in 2018, $1.7 billion of assistance was delivered in cash by WFP. That's about 35% of our total assistance. So we, and that's, that's grown exponentially uh, over the past three or four years. Uh, that assisted about 24 million people in 62 countries. So cash comes in many forms. As I mentioned before, we've traditionally had something that we call vouchers, where you're giving 
refugee communities or other communities, uh, uh, literally a voucher, where they can go to a store and they can exchange it for goods in that store. And the, the store owner has a relationship with WFP. We know what they're selling. We know how much they're selling it for. We can keep the prices at a level that's reasonable for people. And in that way, allow more people to have uh, access to that. But you're seeing much more of a shift now to what's called multi-purpose cash. And so donors are providing cash, which has no tie to any particular sector. So you, in, you can receive cash for housing. You can receive cash for health from WHO. Uh, you can receive it for shelter from UNHCR. But more and more what we're seeing is this multi-purpose cash because the donors are seeing that as a real game changer in terms of how traditionally <coughs> humanitarian response is operated. Uh, we've, we've operated very much in sectors, so WFP food, FAO agriculture, uh, WHO health, and, and the NGOs equally are usually fairly uh, specific about what assistance they provide. But with multi-purpose cash, you can give one agency enough funds to provide everybody with anything. And not only that, you're giving people funds that they can use whatever they want. You don't have to dictate to them what they, what they should use it for, which is empowerment, which is freedom. If, if we were getting money from the government, would we expect the government to tell us what to spend it on? Probably not. So why should we be telling our vulnerable beneficiaries what they should be selling it on? So there's a strong argument for that. But there's all sorts of things under, underlining that, that that need to be in place. There's huge room for corruption, obviously. There's a lot of room for manipulation of data, uh, registries, um, how do you enroll people in programs. So there's, there's systems that need to be put in place. And we're slowly getting there. We're using things such as blockchain uh, to monitor how we're how we're um, providing assistance. But it's, it's a real shift. And it's a hard shift for a lot of people. Coming from WFP, <coughs> truck and chuck, to cash, that's a big shift. You got a lot of log logisticians that are worried about their job. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real game changer for a lot of us. But fundamentally, it doesn't change. It's still a humanitarian assistance. It's still about <coughs> ensuring that vulnerable people get what they need. So. There are lots of discussions happening within the UN now about data and how do we use data. Um, not only do how do we collect it, who collects it, for what purpose, where do you store it, who has access to it, uh, levels of privacy, levels of consent. These are all things that the UN has yet to get its head around. Uh, very recently, there were guidelines issued on uh, the use of data and privacy. Uh, I was in a meeting, I think, about six months ago where there was a broad UN agreement on that. It's 2018. I mean, the rest of the world's moved on. Uh, so there's, there's lots of issues <coughs> behind that. The other part of it is interoperability. So UNHCR is registering refugees here. WFP is providing food to the refugees and the host community here. We're both registering the same people. It's duplication. What's the point? And often then we don't get the same data anyway. So, but we don't have systems that talk to each other because we've grown up in different worlds. Uh, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Because then you have governments that have data. You have governments that want our data. Uh, and so these, these are issues that are very 
up front now. Uh, I'm sure we're going to get through them, but it's, a, it's, it's one that's a, a challenge for us at the moment. Uh, technology obviously is a, is a big concern, but we are trying to also look at that, what the impact of technology will be. We know, for instance, that for every, for every three jobs lost in advances in technology, you'll lose one job for a man, apparently. And for every five, uh, for every job gained, be, you'll lose, uh, the women will gain one job for every five jobs lost. So women are going to be slowly edged out. At least that's the forecast when you're looking at technology and the development of, of uh, uh, automation and this sort of thing. So how do we adjust to that? How do we uh, ensure that our programs are oriented towards ensuring that women are being um, empowered and, and, and brought into those, those systems? Uh, the other areas that I can mention very briefly um, is there's also a big movement uh, within the UN, but I guess within the broader community on localization. What does that mean? Localization is, in the past what we've seen is the UN or, or big NGOs come into a country, establish a presence, and then provide assistance. And we've seen a big movement now towards wanting to empower those local organizations to do that type of work rather than us coming in from the outside. Uh, and who are they? They're the local churches. Uh, they're the, the local town hall, the local community support structure. We're working to identify those, to build those capacities to be able to accept funding, because there's often a lot of ties to funding in terms of accountability and reporting, and build those capacities, because that is obviously a better way of responding, is when you're responding with somebody that you know. Uh, rather than coming in from the outside very expensive. So localization is a big, is a big push. Uh, I think there's a lot of concern around corruption and, and government influence then over that movement, but uh, those are issues that are well known and, and we should be able to address. Uh, more broadly, as I mentioned, this national capacity is something that we're very focused on. We had a discussion just the other day with UNHCR. We have a high-level meeting every year with UNHCR. And we were talking about our own perspectives on, on how assistance is provided, and we, we use the example of Uganda. So if you tell WFP, oh, we're responding to a humanitarian situ situation in Uganda, our first thought is the Karamoja region, which is in the north northeast, uh, which is very poor and, and very marginalized and doesn't have a lot of support from the government. For UNHCR, it's the Congolese in the south. Of that region. And we're, we're just not looking at it in any, any way the same way. And that's, that's, that's the reality of it. We're coming into those situations not thinking, how do we ensure that those programs, those, those broader national programs, are not only capturing the Karamoja region, but they're capturing the Congolese in the south. There's no reason they shouldn't. There are certain political issues around refugees and wanting to make sure that they're not uh, allowed to stay on a permanent basis, but there's no reason not to bring them into social safety nets that provide for them while they're there. And that's the kind of political dynamic that we're working in. And so for UNHCR and WP, there's a great partnership there to ensure that we are leveraging our, our capacities, we're leveraging our ability to reach these communities and then bringing that together. But it doesn't happen that often. I know this is a big surprise to you, but it doesn't happen that often. 
We're working in parallel worlds. So those are that's another big challenge. Uh, maybe I'll stop there. I have other things I can say, um, but uh, maybe I'll stop there for now and, and ask if there are questions or issues that I could speak to. I open the floor. <laughs>